excited and thank you for such a warm invitation and boy the hospital you can I appreciate that. Did you guys see me okay? You go, you got it. And when they I've got a big mouth site. See that mouth I made. You want me to say so? Ah, I'm back on. Maybe I'll put it in my pocket. If that might work. Is that okay? No? Yes? Yes, no? Yeah. All right. But again, I to be with you and um, I hope God will speak to your heart over these next few hours. Uh, I have been praying for you, been asking God to give me wisdom and discernment on what's best for you and how God's word can be specific for you for this weekend. So let's bow our heads in a word of prayer and let's begin focusing on Philippians chapter 4. Yo, back on. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 to verse 14. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace, your mercy. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you that you sent our Lord, our Savior, to die for us. And Lord, we ask that you would clear our hearts and minds this night so that we could have a love that discerns and discernment that loves, that we could hear and understand your will and good pleasure so that we live in a manner worthy of you, that we could be transformed through you and life of satisfaction that comes through genuine fellowship with you. And Father, we'll be careful to give you the... Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to give you a little bit of background about me, something that I hope could encourage you. When my mother was 16, she got pregnant with me, and we were in Georgia. And during that time, my father was kind of like, you guys are probably too young to have known about the Temptations. Have you ever heard of the group The Temptations? They had this song called Papa Was a Rolling Stone, right? That was my father. He was not a... My mother finished college, went on to the University of Tennessee, and got um, a PhD with me being with her the whole time. She never stopped serving. She never stopped being the parent. And so when I came to Christ, it was at the University of Houston, my very last year of college, I came to Christ and just started to get excited about the things of God and all that he was doing. And I ended up going to seminary. And when I was there, I was at Dallas Theological Seminary for a couple of years. My very last year, I get a phone call from my father. And it was a very interesting phone call. It's kind of like, you know, that Star Wars, Luke, I am your father. I don't know if you've ever <laughs> seen that. It was kind of weird like that, right? And he says to me, Listen, let me just be frank with you. I'm a drug dealer. I'm a drug addict. I'm a professional carn artist. You'll never see me. And I thought, wow. He said, the reason you'll never see me is because if anyone knew that I had a son, because of all the dirt I've done, they would take you out and take your mother out. And I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing, so it's best that you never see me. Now, can you imagine having a phone call like that? It was my very last year of seminary. And this is what I get from my father. Now, here's what's interesting. He says this to me, though. He says, as a professional carn artist, I want to teach you something. And I'm saying to myself, I'm in seminary. <laughs> what do I need to learn about a professional carn artist? Why is that even relevant to my life, someone in seminary? 
Best lesson I ever learned. Here's what he said to me, and I'll, I'll never forget this. He said, son, in the game of con artistry, I have taken people for their cars. I have manipulated people out of their homes. I have manipulated people out of money. I have taken boats, you name it. He says, the con game is a very simple game. He says, there's only two types of people that can ever be conned in life. People who are needy and people who are greedy. He says, every person that I've met that's been a needy person, I could sell them a story and manipulate them through the story, and they're so needy, they will listen to me, and I've taken them for everything that you could imagine. He says, but then there are other people that are so greedy that I can manipulate them with a story, and I can take them for house and home. He says, there's only one type of person that I could never con, and that's a content person. I want you to think about that for a moment. Here is a man who's lived his life conning people based upon two conditions, people who are needy and people who are greedy. But he said another person that could not be conned was a content person. When I thought about what he said, as I was one who had learned a little bit of school at the time, I thought, my father has just quoted to me James chapter 1. And I didn't realize around 13 or 14. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. But each man is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And the word lust there means evil desire. Something that you want so bad you're willing to sin to get or sin when you don't get. I.e. needy or greedy. But then I also recognize that he's just really helped me understand Philippians 4 when Paul said, I have learned to be content. And when I thought about the theme that you guys had, I, I wanted us to come tonight and, and really start to think in your world. Where are you needy and where are you greedy? And it's a real simple reality because once you understand this, you can recognize how it is that you could have a wonderful devotion. You could be serving Christ at this local assembly. You could be studying your Bible, but easily find yourself in some form of sin just like that. And it's not that you don't know the truth. It's not that you're not smart. It's not that you don't know the right thing to do. But for many of you, there's some very things in your life where you're very needy or very greedy. And as a result, you're easily manipulated by the cares, riches, pleasures of this life. You're easily manipulated by certain people in certain circumstances. And, and hear me well, it's not because you're not smart. I tell people all the time, I remember a young lady was in my office and she said, well, pastor, you, you know I'm here. I said, yes, I know. She said, you know, I, I, I fell short in the sexual sin. I said, I know, I know. I said, but I want you to ask, answer for me one question. Why? She said, well, he said he loved me. I said, let me get this straight. Because I want you to hear what you just said to me. You know what the scripture says about sexual immorality. You know what the Bible says about purity and that your body is not your own. So I don't have to preach that to you. But because he said he loved you, the most precious thing that you have next to your intelligence, next to your character was your body. And you were willing to let him have it because he said, I love you. She thought about it. I said, let me tell you what just happened. Your desire to be loved became a worship of being loved. And you were willing to compromise the very thing that God gave you 
to be saved for marriage because of your worship of love. I said, my, the one that I love dearly, not considered as a daughter, you were needy and greedy. And you weren't a victim. You were a user. She said, well, well, pastor, how can you say that? I said, well, you, you didn't truly love this guy according to God's love. She said, well, how can you say that? I said, well, think about it. God's love is never devoid of holiness. So since his love is never devoid of holiness, you had a desire and attraction, and he was able to give you something that you wanted at a level that you wanted to where you were willing to compromise the one that you love. And it wasn't because you weren't smart. It was because you were selfish. And she said, Pastor, you're right. I said, Tell me what happened. It wasn't lack of Bible knowledge. It wasn't lack of serving because you serve at the church. It, it wasn't a lack of devotions because you had a lot of devotions. Tell me what it was. She said, I guess I wasn't content. I said, yes. Needy or greedy. I, I want you to capture this because as we look at this passage in Philippians chapter 4 tonight and we walk through a picture of what it means to be content, I want to encourage you that none of you in this room lack for Bible knowledge. None of you in this room lacks for commitment and participation. I mean, you are on a Friday night fellowshipping at your church. Okay. So that, that speaks volumes. You could be doing a whole lot of other things, but you are here. So what I want you to understand tonight is that there are some areas in your heart that if you're not paying attention to, if you're really not honing in on, this is where you're going to always be manipulated because you are needy or greedy. You have not experienced the contentment that God wants you to have. And I want to tell you tonight, as we look at this contentment and understand from a biblical perspective, this is not something that you can study hard to have. This is not something that is going to work because you are being a good Christian, doing your devotions. This isn't going to come from church activity. This is going to come from a learned practice that we're going to see that Paul did. And I want us to look at the pattern of Paul. And as you take on this pattern, you'll begin to see that you will develop in this contentment over time and practice. But I don't care how much you study your Bibles, how many devotions you have, this type of contentment that we'll see in this passage only comes from development. I'm going to hopefully help you see how we can walk in that. Turning your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 10 to verse 14. Now, what's fascinating to me about Philippians 4, 10 to 14, is that Paul is in prison. And as Paul is in prison between two Praetorian guards... Instead of worrying about how he was going to get out, instead of worrying about um, when he was going to get out, he was writing a letter to this particular church. And as he was writing this letter, he's trying to give them encouragement about the reason why he's in prison and the fact that he's there for the progression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that speaks a lot to his character. But as we understand this passage, verse 10 to verse 14, I want to walk it through for a moment. And then I want us to see this picture of contentment. And then I want us to look at a clear definition, if you will, of this contentment. Philippians chapter 4, I'm reading from the ESV version, verse 10. Well, I'm in Hebrews, but I need to be in Philippians. I was like, 
that doesn't look like what I read earlier today. You turn over, turn backwards. Here we go. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned before, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Let me stop there for just a moment and give you a working definition of the word contentment. When you study the the Greek word for contentment, and you look at it in the New Testament, you can summarize it down to this particular meaning. Here's the meaning. Sufficient satisfaction within. Let that sink in for a moment. Sufficient satisfaction within the heart through fellowship with and the power of Jesus Christ apart from external circumstances and people. Let me simplify that. Satisfaction of the soul that doesn't need people or circumstances. In other words, there is this sense of joy, sense of peace, a sense of well-being that's not tied to people and circumstances. Paul has said that whatever situation or circumstance that I've been in, I have learned to have a sense of well-being apart from people and circumstances. Now, he's saying, you, you guys had an opportunity to do some things for me, and you could bring some stuff for me, but you didn't have an opportunity, or in other words, you didn't follow through. But now that you follow through, it's great. But even if you haven't followed through, I was okay. What would it be like to have a well-being that's not tied to your grades? What would it be like to have a well-being that's not tied to what your parents think of you? What would it be like to have a well-being that's not tied to your friends or family or circumstance? What would it be like to have a well-being of the soul that has nothing to do with what people think or what job you have or what status you hold? What would it be like to not be concerned about what people think of you because you're satisfied with what God says about you. Paul says, I have learned to have this sense of well-being that is not tied to people and circumstances. Now walk through with me because we're going to look at this passage. I want to read it through and then we're going to look at how he got there. It's fascinating to me. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, I've learned in what situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to be abound in any and every circumstance. Secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, question. Verse 13 comes after what verse? So verse 13 is tied to When you take a text out of context, you always get a con. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people use verse 13. And it has nothing to do with what verse 13 is talking about. Okay? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then they'll put on an R. Kelly song and, you know, <laughs> I believe I can fly. No, you can't. Okay? Stop lying to yourself. Okay? I'm five, five and a half, and I don't care how much I can believe it, I can achieve it, I'll never be able to dock on a regulation goal. Okay? So it's taking the text out of context. This verse is tied back to verse 12. 
Walk with me. Just go back with me. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to, to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. Then verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What does that mean? I can do all things that he's talking about in verse 12. Okay, does that make sense? The moment we take it out of context, we are lying on the scripture and giving people false hope and it's inconsistent. But then he says this. Yet, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. Now, walk through this definition of contentment. And then I want us to look at the picture of Paul. Paul shows us this picture. And from this picture, I want us to learn how we can grow in this contentment. And, and let me tell you, I didn't preach this for about four or five years. I needed to walk this through in my own life because I have been wrestling with so many different things from family drama to church drama to so many things. And I was miserable. And too much of my well-being was tied to the status of the church. It was tied to where the family was. It was tied to what people thought of me. Too much of my well-being was too wrapped up in people and circumstances. And in order for me to find and to develop and this satisfaction that God had called me to, he had to break me of depending on people and circumstances to be okay. Am I the only one that's ever struggled with that? And see, in reality, it was a tough five years that I've been going through and growing through. But what God did through this passage over these years is help me understand that my knowledge, unless applied, to what he has asked me to do would never bring me a sense of well-being. I could preach this stuff. I could talk about it. But I had five years of a challenge of being weaned off of thinking that my well-being is tied to, again, the status of the church, tied to family, tied to whatever financial position, all those things. And over that time, I have been growing in this thing called contentment. So walk with me in this. So here's the picture of contentment painted by Paul. First of all, if you go back to that verses 10 to verse 11, Paul rejoiced in the Lord. He rejoiced in the Lord when others came through for him, yet his state of mind was not conditioned upon their gift. See, some of us, if you think about what happens, we're so wrapped up in what people say they're going to do for us. And we're so wrapped up in what people can do for us we can begin to limit our minds to people being for us or against us. We can begin to limit our minds to always focused on what we want that we're not getting or what we're getting that we don't want from people to the point that our emotional well-being is wrapped up in what people say or do or don't say and don't do. Paul said, I'm glad you came through for me. But my well-being was not tied to you and your word. And that's an important thing because if we look at this picture of contentment, how he got there, it had to be years of being disappointed by people to where he had to rest, not in the words of people, but in the words of God. Now, here's a dumb question. How many of you know that people can be flaky? Come on, be honest, right? Now, how many of you know that you can be flaky, right? So why would you put your well-being in someone that can versus the person who's never failed, who's always stable, who's never lied, who's always told the truth? 
Paul had made it plain in this passage. I have learned something over these years. I, yes, I'm glad you came through, but my well-being was never tied to that. Well, here's the second thing we see in this passage. Around verse 12, Paul learned to live with what he had and let it be enough for him. To be brought low, I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've the secret facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. What's fascinating, he learned how to live with what he had and to let that be enough. I don't know about you, but I like certain things at a certain time. Am I the only one? And when I don't get things at a certain way at a certain time, it's a bother. You want to take the mic from me? Ah, all right. Let me use it. You turning this one off? Yeah. Please. Okay. All right. Boo, 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 boo. <laughs> I used to want to be a singer, so that I had to get it out. Okay, I got that out of my system. Now. All right. All right. So look at this verse with me. That verse twelve. I've learned to live. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Now, notice he's going through some seasons of life of having something and not having something. He learned how to live with what he had and let it be enough. But verse 12, again, look at letter C. He learned to live without anticipating the provision of God. Some of us don't recognize that when God loves us the way he does, sometimes we love his gifts more than we love him. And sometimes he has to take some things away from us to see how much we love him more than his gifts. Sometimes he has to take some things away from us to, to see how much of our relationship is tied to his character and how much of our relationship is tied to what we want from him. If you think about the Old Testament, um, Psalm, I believe, uh, 103, around, I think, verse 7, it says, the Israelites saw the acts of God but Moses knew his ways. And see, the difference between seeing God do things for you versus being comfortable with who he is and what he is to you. And the more you know who he is and you trust that, the less you have to see him do. It's kind of like with babies. When, when babies are first born and, and the mama, the daddy walks away and they just freak out. I remember my grandson when my daughter had to go to work and she would walk out the door, he would freak. I mean, it was like drama fest. I mean, this little kid would get dramatic. Ah! I mean, it was just dramatic, right? But after he started to see that when his mama would leave, she'd keep coming back, she could stay away longer because he knew her enough to know that even though she's not there in the moment, she's still there. Paul had this relationship, and you could see it in the text. He learned how to live with, he learned how to live without, but he learned that there's a God that will never fail him. Now, I know we don't know who the author of Hebrews was, but the author, Paul, said, <laughs> I'm going to leave that alone. Some of you picked that up later. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. Be content with what you have. That's around, I think, Hebrews, uh, I believe it's chapter 13. But the reality I'm getting to is this. There's a relationship here that had to be developed through a time of God providing 
and God allowing lack. There had to be a development of a relationship that says, I'm not dependent on the gifts. I'm dependent on you, the giver. When I love what you give me more than I love you, I'm always freaking out when my bank account or my gifts are at a certain level. But when I love you more than I love the gift, then I recognize that I may have resources, but you are the source. And I can depend on you above the resource. Paul is saying in this passage, I've learned with, to live with a little. I've learned to live with a lot. But, but here's the big part of verse 12 I want you to see. And this is the secret to it all. In order to have to live with a little and to live with a lot, Paul adjusted his desires to fit the situation. Now, I, I need you to let that sink in for a moment. This is the practice that we see of contentment. He adjusted his desires to fit the situation. You say, well, how do you see that? It doesn't say that in the text. Well, let's look at what's implied. Look with me at verse 12 for a moment. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of, face, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In order for you to learn how to have a lot and to have nothing, you have to adjust your desires to fit the situation. There's no way that you can want the same thing and God gives you less than what you want and you'd be okay unless you adjust to what God lets you have. And, and you know what that taught me about Paul and it taught me about this thing of contentment? God has to allow us to go through some things so that we will grow through so that we learn in any and every situation if this is what you want me to have, I can live with what you want me to have above what I thought I should have in the moment. Do you know why people are worried and people are angry? Because in those moments, their desires are bigger than God's sovereignty at the moment. See, and when God says you can't have what you want, but this is what you can have, and you're still angry and worried, you're saying what I want is more important than what you've allowed me to have. And my satisfaction and sense of well-being is not tied to you, O sovereign one. It's tied to what I want, that you're not giving me or what you're giving me I don't want. And here is Paul saying, I've had to learn in order to get to this place of sufficient satisfaction in my soul, this sense of well-being, I had to learn to adjust my desires. Let me see if I can make it plain. When God has allowed my wife and I to have more than what we have needed, we've learned two principles to enjoy and to share. But when God let us be broke, I mean broke, I mean to my ghetto broke, just nothing, right? We had to learn to live with what he gave us and be okay. And over these 26 years of our marriage, we have seen God do that. Well, we've had a lot and we've had a little. And the older we get and the more we trusted God and less of what he gave us, our emotions would be stable and we would say, okay, it's time to adjust our desires to fit the situation. That's a discipline, guys. And in order for you to have a sense of well-being that's not tied to your grades, not tied to your relationships, not tied to your job status, not tied to your parents, not tied to your siblings, not tied to the things of life, you're gonna to have to learn to adjust your desires to fit the situation. 
my oldest grandson is learning how to relate to the opposite sex. He just turned 17. And so we have been teaching him about how to relate to girls. And so he met this one young lady and she's attractive and he was just all in la-la land with this young lady. <laughs> but this young lady's family had made some decisions for her life that didn't fit him. And so he was feeling the pain and so we were trying to walk him through it. Uh-oh. Okay, we're good. We were trying to walk him through that to say, hey, this is a time in life where you're going to learn how to adjust your desires to fit the situation. God allowed you an opportunity to learn how to relate to this young lady, and there will be others. Learn from this, but accept what you can't have and live with what you can have. And if you can learn that now, you're going to be free for the rest of your life. Paul learned to live with. He learned to live without. Does that make sense, guys? Walk with me, verse 13. He, he learned this, and we see this. He had a fellowship with God in his condition and circumstances. Notice he says in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, in order to live with a little or live with a lot, I adjusted my desires to fit the situation. But in adjusting my desires to fit the situation, I was able to do that because I wasn't consumed with what I wanted. I was consumed with the God to whom I worship. That is a skill. That takes time. You can't learn that through a Bible study. You can't learn that through a devotion. That is something you have to develop over time of people and circumstances, learning in every given moment, Lord, if you were to take this from me, I can be okay because my well-being is not connected to people and circumstances, it's connected to you. I can hold things in my hands loosely. But the other thing we see in this passage is that Paul showed appreciation one of the others came through for him, yet he did not live for by what others would do or may not do for him. Too many of you are waiting by the phone instead of worshiping the Lord. You are too consumed with what someone said they were going to do and not trusting more what God has promised you. And this thing of contentment is so important because if we can look at what Paul did, he, he rejoiced, but he wasn't consumed. He learned to live with what he had and let it be enough. He learned to enjoy the good, endure the bad, but he adjusted his desires to fit his situation. And this was all done by his fellowship with God. This husband and wife, they were in counseling. And the husband began to talk, and then the wife began to talk. And they were just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And they had a lot of struggles going on. And the counselor said, wait a minute, I understand what's happening here, and I need you guys to listen. And they stopped and said, okay. He said, sir, you live with your wife by fantasy. He said, ma'am, you live with your husband by fear. He said, let me explain what I mean. Because, sir, you live with your wife by fantasy, it doesn't matter what she does. It never quite fits 
the idea you had in your head. So doesn't matter what she did, the way she did it, how well she did it. You've got this fantasy in your mind of how you think things ought to be, and she never, ever gets there. He said, ma'am, you live by fear. And even when things are well, you're always freaking out, waiting for the bottom to fall out because you're thinking that it can only get so good for so long and something bad is going to happen. He says, but there's one thing that you both are lacking. Neither one of you are living by faith. And I thought, wow. That's what happens when you lack contentment. You're either living by a lot of fear, always consumed with what may happen, or you're living by a lot of fantasy. Nothing ever matches your expectations because you always have a standard higher than what's happening because you haven't lived in reality, you've lived in fantasy. Contentment will never come by living by fear or living by fantasy. Contentment only comes by faith. And that faith is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That faith is in what he has promised. That faith is in the character of God. This contentment thing that we're talking about, this sufficient satisfaction, this sense of well-being, you will only have it when you learn to live in the good and bad with God. If I can simplify it like this, you enjoy the good, endure the bad while living for Jesus Christ. That's the simplicity of this passage. You enjoy the good, you endure the bad while living for Jesus Christ. That will teach you to adjust your desires to fit the situation. Now, let me walk you through for just a moment some of the Bible verses that give us a perspective. We saw the picture from Paul of this understanding of contentment. I want to give you a perspective of what content people should look like and how they should think. And as you go back, and I want you to look at some of these passages and just pray on some of this as you look at your life. A content person is able to accept their condition. What does that mean? You recognize the sovereign borders of God for your life. And you recognize what you can and can't have in a moment. You recognize what you can and cannot control. And you start accepting your roles and responsibilities Versus trying to force what can't be forced and trying to fix what was never yours to fix. The moment you can do that and accept your condition, it doesn't mean you have a resolve to do nothing. It means you have a resolve to be and to function according to God's responsibilities for your life and by his power. And what you can't control, you accept it. And you live in such a way to say, Lord, what I want, I can't have. So teach me how to live with what I can't have in this very moment. You are in control. This is how content people process. But secondly, a content person accepts their contents. Now, what do I mean by that? There's nothing wrong with having nice things, okay? But if your whole world is about having nice things, you're going to be miserable because you'll never have enough. And it'll get old. Make sense? But thirdly, a content person is able to endure their circumstances. They understand that God is working out a plan. But fourth, a content person is depending on Christ, not people, not other things. A content person is pursuing, if you will, a Christ likeness. A content person, here's a big one, is not a complainer. 
whenever you are complaining, can I tell you what you're telling God? You don't know what you're doing and you've made a mistake. The Bible tells us in all things we're to give thanks. And where you are complaining, I'll show you where you're worshiping. You show me where you're worried. You show me where you're angry. You show me where you're complaining. I'll show you what you worship. And it's not Jesus in that moment. Does that make sense, everybody? A content person has an attitude of consideration. What does that mean practically? Their life is bigger than their life. Now, I want to close this part out by giving you some things that I've been working on over the last few years. I've been trying to develop in this because for me, this was not just a text to teach you. It's been a life that I've been trying to live. And as I've been trying to live this life, I've, I've been developing in some patterns, some things that I'm learning. And as I'm learning these patterns, it's, it's helping me to experience more of the well-being of the presence of God above people and circumstances. And what's happening is still having a lot of drama in all the different areas of my life. But as that drama keeps increasing, my sense of well-being is increasing because I'm no longer consumed with the outcome of people and circumstances like I used to be. Now, I've got a lot of work to do, but it's a lot better. And I just want to share with you some basic strategies that I've been working through. And let's walk through some of them together. I think you have them in your notes. Here's the first one. Enjoy the good and perfect gifts that God provides in your life through the means of people, circumstances, and tangible things of this creation. Listen, when God lets you have it, enjoy. There's no shame in it. If God has blessed you with it, enjoy it. I can tell you guys, when the Lord lets us have things, we enjoy it. But when we're broke, we enjoy that too. Hey, it was good while it lasted. <laughs> but here's the second thing. <laughs> Something that I had to learn and took some time. Grieve. Grieve the disappointments in your life that come through the means of sin, that come through the suffering and the unrealized expectations in relation to people and circumstances and tangible things. I didn't know how to grieve. I, I didn't understand that it was okay to feel sad when things didn't go well. I, I thought it was a sin or it was a lack of faith. There's nothing wrong with grieving over disappointments. And I remember I shocked the congregation one Sunday. I said, guys, this morning your pastor is not feeling well. I've had some disappointing things that happened, and I need some time to process it. So after I finish the sermon today, I need to get away. But I'm going to come back a little bit later, but I need to process some things because I'm just a little disappointed. And it shocked them like, oh, not the pastor. Yes. And that opened a dialogue for some conversation. And so then I would talk to some of my members. They would say, well, pastor, I wasn't feeling well the other day. Well, what's going on? Talk to me. And, and it put us at a level of vulnerability together that was different because I hadn't learned, and I wanted to teach them as I was learning, sometimes I'm disappointed about things, and I grieve. But here's the third thing I've learned. You can't stay at letter B. You got to get to letter C. Give thanks for your condition and circumstances, knowing that God will use it to bring about his glory and your good through your condition and circumstances. So I'm learning to enjoy things when they go well. I'm learning to grieve when things are not well, but I'm learning how to give thanks. But, but the fourth one is more important to me than the third one, and that's this. Accept and endure what God has allowed in your life through the means of suffering, sin, unrealized expectations, people and circumstances, intangible things of this creation 
through seeking to make the most of it without complaining. You know what that means? God is going to allow you to suffer. God is going to allow you to be satisfied. God is going to allow you to be disappointed. God is going to allow you to be delighted. Learn to accept God's agenda for your life and that he means your best interest. He means your good. The moment you can accept and endure, <coughs> excuse me, you get on the path of learning that your well-being was never tied to the moment. It's always been tied to the Messiah. Letter E is the most important thing. If you don't get anything tonight, this is the most important discipline I encourage you to learn. Adjust your desires to fit your situation in relation to people, circumstances, and tangible things of this creation. There was this old song I used to hear all the time. You can't always get what you want. Y'all ever heard that song? And that's a reality. You can't always get what you want. And the world doesn't revolve around you getting what you want. And in order for you to have a sense of well-being in this life, you have to recognize that God did not create anything for itself. Everything God created was for his glory. And in order for you to have a real sense of well-being in life, you got to come to the place to recognize that God is not evil. He's not mean. He's not trying to be against you. He's trying to help you understand your well-being is never tied to anything less than him. That includes your status, your grades, you name it. It's always been about him. Here's the next thing. No longer demand that people satisfy you, but seek to help people glorify God. Many of us don't understand how we have lowered our relationships to a level that God didn't exist for us to lower it to, or he, we lowered it to a level that God never planned. See, when people are either for you or against you in your mind, when people are either your help or your hindrance in your mind, then you can't think best about them because you're always seeing them as either a opposition or a opportunity. That makes people too low because they're just a means to your end. And when that happens, you can't think the best of people and everything is taken at a personal level. See, when people are either for you or against you, then everything they do in that moment, it's either wonderful or horrible because it impacts you way too much. You know what I mean by that? You can't be okay unless things go your way with people. Imagine the pressure that puts on them in your life. Because what you're telling them is they don't have room to fail when it comes to the matters that are important to you. And let that sink in for a moment. If people don't have room to fail when it comes to matters that are important to you, and since no one is perfect, we're all being perfected, then how do you think they feel in your presence all the time? They don't have the freedom to grow because you will dismiss them or delight in them with their nails moments. No longer demand that people satisfy you. Seek for them to glorify God. Here's another thing. Function according to your roles and responsibilities in relation to people and circumstances as assigned by God and commanded by God out of your covenant with God and not your mood of the moment. 
How many of you know a lot of moody people? Any of you know moody people? Also, some of you are moody. That's why you're not raising your hand. I get it. I got it. I understand. If you're going to have a sense of contentment, you cannot deal with people according to your mood. You got to deal with people according to your commitment to God. Because what you're telling people is, I only treat you right when I feel right. When I don't feel right, you're not going to get the best out of me. But when you learn to operate by faith and not by mood, you learn to operate in a discipline that will bring you to a sense of well-being that's apart from people and circumstances. Here's the last two things. Embrace the character of God that's befitting for the moment, leading to worship and enjoyment of God according to the character. And if we summarize it all, we're saying this. Enjoy every pleasure that God allows. Endure every pain that God allows while living from him, while living through him, while living to him in our condition and circumstances, focusing on his covenant to us. Guys, I'm, I don't have this perfect, but I can tell you over the last five years, there's been a shift in my life. And as I've been meditating and studying this passage, trying to identify what Paul did and, and how I can learn from Paul, these are the principles that are dropping out. And as they're dropping out, my relationships are better. I'm learning to enjoy and endure people. I'm learning to be more honest with people about where I am and, and, and what needs to happen. But I'm recognizing that people weren't reduced for me. They were meant to bring glory to God. Let me close. I want to read this to you. I, I think you may find this fascinating. Listen to these words. Jesus is the doorway into the life that is truly life. Confidence in him leads us to become his apprentice in eternal living. Those who connect with Jesus Christ will find all they need to have in life and life to no limit. We must increasingly integrate our lives into the spiritual world of God at every point of our lives. We must live our lives in interactive dependence upon God and interactive submission to his kingdom rule. The condition of life sought by human beings through the ages is attained in quietly transforming friendship of Jesus. We must learn what is real, discover how well off we are in Jesus and begin to live according to this reality. <coughs> Excuse me. We're supposed to groan because there are things that we have been promised, but do not yet have. We're supposed to groan because the full expression of God's kingdom has not yet come. We're supposed to groan because we're not yet all that God shed the blood of his son for us to become. We're supposed to groan because the temporary pleasures of this physical world do not satisfy us. They always leave a void in our hearts. We're supposed to groan because in every situation and circumstance, we see the damage that sin has done and all the physical world and what we can only find in the Lord and what will only be fulfilled in eternity. This side of eternity, groaning is meant to be the default language of the big kingdom. When we groan for these reasons, we get it right. The kind of groaning is only present in people who are submitting little kingdom desires to big kingdom interests. Where does one find ultimate fulfillment, satisfaction, and contentment in God and God alone? Living for God is indeed fulfilling, but we don't find him fulfilling because we're too busy 
being satisfied with the temporal pleasures of the physical world. Before we ever come to God, we've already decided the things we want in order to be fulfilled. We tend to seek God so that he will deliver some kind of physical, relational, or circumstantial fulfillment. Rather than working to satisfy us in these, God wants us to experience hunger so deep that it drives us to forsake these things and finally find our satisfaction in him. The reason you are going through what you're going through is not because God is mad at you. It's not because God sees less of you. He's trying to bring you to a place where you recognize that it's only through him you have full sense of well-being. That is why you've lost some things. That's why some people are not in your life. That's why some people have come into your life. That is why sometimes you're broke. That's why sometimes you're blessed. It's to teach you not to depend on people and circumstances, but to find your well-being in him. I want you to look at these questions and over the weekend, over the next few days, see if you can answer these questions. Get along with God. Go back over this passage. Do some real study time and, and think about these questions. Use it as a devotion, but don't do it in the morning because you haven't sinned good yet. Wait till the day is done before you get hungry or maybe after you ate your meal and before you go to sleep. Not when you're too sleepy, right? But just right at that right time in the afternoon, start to answer these questions for the next seven or eight days. What do I want that I can't control getting? What am I getting that I don't want and I can't control it? How am I responding in attitude to this? How am I responding in conversation to this? How am I responding in actions to this? How am I treating others as a result of this? According to the scripture, how would God view my attitude, conversation, actions, and relational patterns in relation to this? What do I need to accept that God has allowed? How do I need to obey God in this situation? What has God promised in his word that I can rest on in accordance to this situation? And the most important lesson I want you to learn tonight, how can I adjust my desires to match my situation? I want to encourage you as we begin our journey over the weekend. Contentment is a fellowship. You can't learn it. You can't pray for it. You can't study enough. You can't do enough ministry. It requires your intimate relationship with God. Which means sometimes you're going to have to let some things go in this world so that it can take out or be put out so that God has more place in your soul. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. And Lord, I pray for Lighthouse. I pray for every man, woman, child, every boy and girl. I pray, Lord, that wherever they are hungry, where there is a dissatisfaction, expose their hearts to see that only you can bring it. And maybe you've taken something out of their life. Maybe you put something in their life. Help them to learn to enjoy, to endure. But I pray you help them to discover that well-being is tied to you. Not the people, not the circumstances. We know that you will use those things. But ultimately, it's you. May they learn. May they live. May they love. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, guys.